calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we're sharing more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of a sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Yay, we're back! <laughs> Oh, I've missed the studio audience. We had to well, there you go. It's great to see them. When we first you know, moved, we couldn't fit everyone. Let's blame COVID. <laughs> well, so Steve, before we get into our great guest today, we're going to be talking about the life and legacy of the great Jim Henson. We have the author of the book, Salmon Friends, the story of Jim Henson's first television show, Craig Shimon, and his fantastic wife, Stephanie DeBruzzo, who is also a great artist, puppeteer, writer in her own right. But before we get to all that, we're going to talk about what has been going on in our lives. That was a little unnecessary, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, just, <laughs> just a little bit, maybe. So this Don't is actually moved. the first show that th this is the first show that we've done moved into the new house yes. we're not unpacked but we're completely untethered from the old house so this is the the first one this is a, in our first week the first full week in True. the new house and trying to get things set up for work and family and you know so forth how have you been adjusting sweetie I am in ecstasy in the new house. I am a nester. So the first thing I do is I try to get rid of every box in sight, hide them in the closet so I can pretend that we're not living out of boxes. I, I For the first time, I asked the landlord if I could paint a room. I'm always so timid with landlords. It's like, please, sir, can we live in your space? And I was like, I'm... I'm 
I guess I'm beyond that point in life now. I'm like, I want my wall peach. I'm putting in a ceiling fan, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> what does he care? I'm making improvements at his house. But uh, it feels really, really good to be in this space and to have the room, the beauty, the elegance. How about you? There's a slight sense of disorientation. You know, for six years, we were living in a house that I did not love uh, right. because Same we least. had to move there because there was an emergency. And then, you know, we had to stay there until the lease was up. And then when the lease was up, we had to make sure we had the resources to move. And when we the re- lease was up and we had the resources, then COVID hit. <laughs> yes. you know? And wow. so then, you know, after COVID hit, we could see that we had we made a, a very had we had very good career growth during COVID. But we also spent a lot of that money trying to help us feel like human beings, mm-hmm. you know, to you know, to rent Airbnbs so our, our, our family could have some celebrations together. And so when when the when COVID eased and the lease was also about to get over, what we had to do is look at that months ahead of time and say, how do we organize things? We make sure we have the time, the energy, the resources, everything to move. So it, it was a matter of months and I'm still a little bit in shock with, you know, and, and you know that for six years, I, my office was in the sunroom, yes. which was unfinished. So it was too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter. Poor baby. But one of us had to be out there. And quite frankly, I preferred it be me than you. Well, there were practical considerations. You know, you you had your piano and I didn't want your piano in an an unfinished room where it could seem to be warped by the weather. Yeah. So, you know, it's, but what happened when I did that was I shut my emotions down. I shut some of my emotions down. I literally did not let myself see where I was living and how I was doing things or feel some of what I was feeling. That is, you know, I just focused totally on trying to get the work done. Try to get the work done every day. Let me get the work done every day. Let me get the work done. Let me take care of my family. Let me make sure my family's okay. You are my like that. Okay. You definitely do hunker down and just grin, you know, not even grin and bear it, but just work and bear it. Well, it was that belief that we could get through this, that this was another test. You know, that, that I know that one of the things about myself is that I have a tendency to think that if there's a bad time, I paid for that bad time. So what is the lesson encoded within it? What can I learn about that bad time? What can I learn about myself, you know, either myself or about the world that is worth the price I paid for it? So the more pain I went through when something happens, the more I'm going to demand that I learn from it in order to move forward. So I never want that to happen again. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What, What difference could I have made? And so I'm still processing. I mean, we've only been here, like I said, you know, five days. Yeah, we turned the keys in Friday. Yeah. So, you know, so we've been here for six days. And so I'm just beginning the process. And, you know, I have panic attacks in my way, you know, in the sense of understanding that, you know, swinging from one vine to another vine, you have to let go of one vine to grab the next one. Um, I also had to really embrace the notion that who we are is different from who you are or who I am. That the unity of the two of us is what makes the marriage work, what makes the relationship work. So if there are ways in which I don't see what my next step is, I'm not sure what I need to do. The answer is very much like what Jordan Peele said in Nope. You don't look directly at the problem. 
you look directly at the work that will deal with the problem. You look directly at the person you need to be to do the work to deal with the problem. There it is. The only thing you can keep control over is who are you today? And what is the work that is right in front of you today? And my work was being happy and grateful for my life, trying to take care of you guys, take care of my writing, take care of my family, exercise, and trust that the rest of it will come. I feel like I'm, I'm I'm, I'm starting to chew my way out of a chrysalis. Oh, baby, poor baby. Well, you know, despite all the deficiencies and where we were living, and especially for you and that that office where it was too hot or too cold, depending on what time of year it was, we wrote some great projects in that house. And we enjoyed some great years of development with our son, Jason, who yeah, fabulous. age 12 to age 18 in that house. A huge yes. difference. Many, many changes. COVID, you know, for all the tragedy around the country was sort of a blessing in disguise for our family because we grew closer. We had much yes. more control over Jason's education, more than I wanted when he started homeschooling. <laughs> But that part I hang on to, and I'm still processing despite all my celebrating. Last night, I did have a dream that the three of us were still finishing the move, right? Picking through the leftover boxes and little odds and ends and trinkets in the rooms and finding things still. So I haven't quite let go of the vine, as you put it so well, but but I'm working on it. Let's give ourselves six months. Sure. One month for every year that we were in there. That makes sense. You know, at the very least, I don't expect any sanity about the subject for six weeks. Uh, no. We're at least one week for every year. So, and you're right. We did some fantastic work. We sure you did. Know, I used as much of the pain as I could and the fear that things are not going to change. This is the beginning of the end where it's downhill from here. But at the same <laughs> time, we had all these wonderful opportunities. Yes. So it's the, if I can take care of today and Today is structured so that if I can have a succession of good days, I have a good week. If I have a succession of good weeks, I have a good month. If I have a succession of good months, I have a good year. That kind of thing. So it's just, you know, one day at a time. Chop wood, carry water. And if at the end of that time, I felt closer to Jason, and I felt that Jason was closer to being the young man that he craves to be, and if I felt closer to you, and I had a greater sense of appreciation for who you are and the magic that you bring to my life. Mm. And over that period of time, I experienced some real promotion and growth within my martial arts training. You sure did. Then life is just what it is. And in many ways, we were blessed. You know, that that home for anything that I disliked about it was still our fortress it was a place to keep my family safe. It was a place to work. It was a place to sleep and love yes. and watch Dick Van Dyke every night. You know? Every so other night. We, it's, have, it's all we good, have to really. parcel them out to every other night because otherwise we just race through the whole series too quickly. And then before you know it, it's over. We're alternating with Larry Sanders. And eventually we'll start <laughs> exactly. alternating with Mary Tyler Moore again. I don't there know. There it is. So, well, I, you know, it, should we bring in our guests and start? Yes, I say let's now? bring in our guests. I am really, really excited. And we'll, and we'll bring up the video in just a moment. But first, I just want to 
talk a little bit about who we have on our podcast today. As I mentioned earlier, Craig Shimon is someone I have known since we were both at Northwestern University. So I think he was 17 when I met him. I was a sophomore. He was a freshman. We lived in a dorm for creative people. So we had every advantage of dreaming and, and you know, television, film, journalism, radio, you name it. It was this great, great, training ground outside of the classroom that we enjoyed in the communications residential college. Shout out to CRC at Northwestern. But beyond that, he's had like a hopeful life, apparently. He's a freelance writer, producer, director in all media, beginning his career with a 14-year stint with Jim, the Jim Henson Company. I remember him going from being a Jim Henson fan to working at Jim Henson. So the huge leap. Was he the first person you knew who had a dream and stepped into it? I guess that would be true. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. Absolutely. His latest project is Sam and Friends, the story of Jim Henson's first television show published by Bear Manor Media. He created and wrote the Disney Channel's successful interstitial series, Lou and Lou, Safety Patrol, wrote the Emmy-nominated Tasty Time with Zifranc, also for, I hope I'm pronouncing Zifranc right, but we'll find out, also for Disney. He produced and directed an award-winning behind-the-scenes documentary about Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. I remember Craig gave us a copy of that Jug Band Christmas for, for Jason for the Holiday Classic Special Edition DVD, and produced a documentary that accompanied the Smithsonian Institution's touring museum exhibition, Jim Henson's Fantastic fantastic world. There's so much more. And I mean, he's he wrote Dick Cabot Ruined My Life, winner of the Writers Network Screenwriting Competition, The Green Room, a play about the early years of television, several readings in New York City. His play Panophobia was a semi-finalist for the Eugene O'Neill Playwrights Conference and wrote the new book and revised lyrics for the Little Orchestra Society's production of Babes in Toyland, which played Lincoln Center for three holiday seasons. And that that is Craig. I'm going to give him a little comedy sting there. And Stephanie DeBruzzo, his wife is best known for her Tony-nominated debut performance as Kate Monster and Lucy the Slut in the Tony-winning Broadway musical Avenue Q. In addition to her Tony nomination, she also received a Theater World Award, Outstanding Ensemble and Puppet Artistry Award from the Outer Cricket Critics Circle. She's graced the stage in Jerry's Girls, I Am, I Will, I Do, Academia Nuts, Greed, a musical for our times. Love. I mean, there's literally almost too much to list, but I will say that her latest adventure is playing Cody on the Apple TV Plus series, Helpsters, from the makers of Sesame Street. She also performed Cody and Helpsters Help You, the Emmy-nominated short series of many episodes shot from her home during the quarantine. But Sesame Street is not the only place she plies her puppetry craft. She plays Duck Duck, Harriet, Elizabeth Cow, and Mama Panda on Donkey Hody, Donkey Hody, get it? A new PBS series from Spiffy Pictures and Fred Rogers Productions. And, you know, I'm just going to have to bring them on. Welcome to Craig and Steph. Welcome to the show. We're so excited that you're joining us. The audience got so excited when their faces popped up. It's great. We should have sent shorter bios. No, it's okay. (laughs) I've got to ask a question. What was Jim Henson's reaction to Avenue Q? Well... He was already gone by that. Was time. he already gone? Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. But the Henson Company had a Jane Henson. Jane came Jane Henson came it. and saw it. I think that there was there Jerry Jewell, who was Jim's head writer for many years, saw it and said that Jim would have loved it. Good. 
And a lot of people from the Sesame world as well came. And Pat Collins, who was Joe Raposo's wife for many years, who was a longtime composer for Sesame Street, said it was a love letter to Sesame Street. And it absolutely producers was. producers came and puppeteers and performers. And In they the all beginning, there were it. some legal concerns. They just wanted to make sure that there was going to be a disclaimer to make sure that people didn't think these well, were actual Sesame yeah, Street characters. Just for understanding. And I cannot imagine really- anyone not seeing the vast amount of genuine affection that went yeah. in there and the talent and the skill and you guys were obviously all Sesame Street nerds. Yeah, we had a and, and many of us veterans as well of the yes. show. So, you know, in fact, I think all the puppeteers at that time. But yeah, and also, you know, to make sure that people knew it wasn't for kids or kids under 13. Right. I just want to let you know, we're coming to you from New York City. So there's like construction going on somewhere in our apartment building. So if you hear noise, just know that it's uh, out of our control, sadly. We will. The city that never sleeps. Not hearing. Never stops trying to fix itself. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say before I forget, Stephanie, when when my stepdaughter, Nikki, was in Avenue Q playing your part. You actually sent her a very encouraging video, and that was very sweet. And you're actually Aww. the second actress to do that. The other was Viola Davis <gasps> when Nikki had the part. Oh my gosh, what's the name of that movie? The 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 the, the oh no, this always happens to me. I can't. But Viola Davis had a had a a, a small but very very powerful part. In, in, an Oscar, in an Oscar-winning movie, and Nikki also played that role. So you are in great company oh. who encouraged my stepdaughter. Uh, to be in the same sentence as Viola Davis, <laughs> I'll take that. My goodness. That was back uh, when she was, like, on Facebook. And, you know, it was like, you know, Viola Davis, like, small letters, not all caps. <laughs> yeah, but now. you know what? Here's the thing about that. The, the person and the talent, that stays the same. Yeah. You know, she's still mighty even when nobody knew who oh, she absolutely. was. Absolutely. And so I I am still, I am in very good company. That's, and that's amazing. The movie was Doubt. I looked it up. The movie was Oh, Doubt. of course. Hoffman. So yeah, and Nikki had that right. role. And, and anyway, welcome both of you to the show. We don't often have two guests at the same time. I think you're our first. Yeah, yeah I think that this is the first time. First creative couple on the show. Wow. And, you know, I do want to start like in the way back machine (laughs) at Northwestern University when when Craig came, I had been there for a year and we became a very tight circle of friends, many of us keeping in touch to this day because we all were creative. And I guess I want to I, I saw your zeal and love for all things creative, television, television, history, that enthusiasm was was always there. In some ways, you're the same person. And I feel like I'm kind of the same person, too. So that's what's what's kind of strange. What was it about that experience, that incubator we were in that that helped launch you or did it? Well, I, well no, I think it did. I think part of it was that it was the first time that I sort of found myself surrounded by a lot of people who also had those passions that, you know, when you're coming up in elementary school and high school, you know, people are thinking about where they are at that moment. And if they're going to make the the team or if they're going to do that, not even then I was thinking about what I was going to do in the future. You know, right. I wanted to be creative. I wanted to move forward. I wanted to put my time into doing something, you know, creative that would sort of take me forward. And I think once you get to college, you're surrounded by people who also want to be doing that. Yes. And I think that, you know, in in our dorm, 
you know, we had a lot of people who would just get together and get in, be in each other's projects or videos. And it was just sort of a, a great opportunity to be with a lot of creative people for the first time. And I think that really moved me forward, helped define where I wanted to get to. Stephanie, how did you and Craig meet? Well, we met through mutual friends at this particular dorm. Craig and I are both Northwestern and we both lived in CRC, but we were five years apart. And I heard Craig's name from the upperclassmen who knew him when they were underclassmen. CRC, I I like to call a creative co-intern really what it is. It's a residential fraternity of like-minded people. And what I love the most about it is a safe space to fail. We were, we were making crap at 3 a.m. But it was great crap and it was fun crap. And, and that was, was cra- back in the time where to make this crap, you had to carry around a lot heavier things than yeah. you do now. To make- yeah. And much got, more expensive it. things. I've got to interject something. You've already mentioned three things that are extraordinarily important. One is having a goal, a vision for your future, and and to and to trust it, even if you change it along the way. To trust that you have the ability to turn yourself into who it is that you want to be. You have some agency there. The other is surrounding yourself with people who support your vision, who who are the same kinds of weirdos that you are. You found your tribe. Tananarive found her tribe, and all these years later, you guys are still members of the same tribe. You found your spouse within that tribe, okay? Mm-hmm. And the third thing is giving yourself permission to fail. That people do not give themselves permissions to fail. They only okay. see the golden results of the successful people. They don't see all the damage along the way, all the times they picked themselves up, the times that everybody told them they couldn't do it. So just in in three minutes, you've touched, <laughs> if, if people will just write those things down and pay attention to them. You've just changed people's lives. That's brilliant. <laughs> what I really... Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. What I really loved about CRC, too, is that it wasn't all just, I was radio TV film, Craig was radio TV film, but there were journalism majors and tech majors and communication studies majors and pre-med, right, and tech majors who weren't necessarily wanting to make films but they did in their spare time so that what they learned from the people who were making things and what we learned from those other voices some of my favorite performances and favorite comedy input came from journalism majors that i know wildly funny people who had no aspiration to do it for a living so it was really again because the stakes were low and because it was just any uh, well, Jim Henson, the best idea wins. 
And I think part uh-huh. of it was because we were in this dorm, you know, if you were not living where we were, which had equipment and a dark room and all this stuff, it was hard to do creative projects outside of class yeah. yes. because it was hard to get your hands on equipment. So we were able to do stuff, as Stephanie said, that you didn't have to worry about success or failure because you weren't getting graded on. Right. You know, it was stuff outside of, of like, you know, Tanana did this great project. She wrote a piece called The Other Side, and we all got together and, and made it. True. One, my first my next, short next film story. adaptation, all my friends yeah, in yeah. it. And uh, it was great. It was freeing because it wasn't for a class. It wasn't for a grade. It was just to have fun and put together a story. And, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a great experience to have that freedom to be able yeah. to do that and worry, not worry about getting an A or a B. Yeah. And, and, and to also just try things that are outside your comfort zone. I mean, one of the reasons I was able to pursue teaching myself puppetry and television puppetry is I had a group of people who were willing to help me out with these projects and I give me feedback on characters and just help out and be there. And because nobody does it alone. You know, we say this all the time. Nobody does it alone. We have team of friends and collaborators who were there to help us figure out, you know, if we wanted to try something, hey, okay, fine. What do you need? That's a really invaluable thing to have at that time in your life because, you know, so much of college and high school can be about competition and about, you know, who's the best and getting the part. And I really felt like there were times when, I mean, I would help out with friends projects and sometimes I was on camera and sometimes I was helping them lug lights. Mm-hmm. The same thing with my friends there. You had to, the ego part of it didn't come into play as much because it was all in the spirit of, Hey, you know, kind of Mickey and Judy, let's yeah. put on a show. You, you had this pool of talent that you, for the last time, really, yeah. you didn't have to worry about how you were going to pay them. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was essentially, you know, a lot pizza. of favors going back and forth. Well, yeah, and pizza. You know, yeah. our friend Rob Vamosi, who oh. Tanana knows very well, <laughs> yes. he was doing a, a project. He needed me to, like, act for him at, like, 11 o'clock at night. And how did he lure you? Yeah. And how did he lure you into doing I'll, this? I'll buy you a quarter pounder. You know? <laughs> oh, that's it. That'll do it. <laughs> well, let me, like, yes, when do you want me? Let me ask you, you this, Craig, you, you're five years ahead of Stephanie, and I'm assuming that you were at Henson and working with Henson first. Was it just a coincidence that Stephanie also ended up working with Jen Henson, or was that related to the fact that you knew each well, other? You know, I think that I had done some stuff in college with puppets. And then you knew that I had moved on to to Henson. But I don't know if that had any impact on you making your decision to do puppets. No, no. I had decided that puppetry appealed to me because it was a way to play all the different kinds of characters that I wanted to play without it mattering what I looked like physically. And so I had decided this was an avenue I wanted to pursue. And the person that I told about this, Chris Araneta, also a CRCer, who had had an internship at the Jim Henson Company that summer and had actually stayed with Craig and his family, said, hey, you know, that's well, first of all, he said, your chances are slim to none. (laughs) as a woman. And he was right. He was absolutely right. My chances were slim to none. But he also had talked about his friend Craig who worked at Henson and said, you know, I hope you get to meet Craig someday. He's a great guy. I don't know if he can be any help, but at least, you know, 
you could talk to him about you know, what it would take to do that. Craig had done a puppetry project at Northwestern that he gave me a tape of, a thing called On Your Own, which was a children's television show that had humans and puppet element to it. And I, I was inspired by that, not so much in what he did, but that, oh, I could do it too. That was why Chris gave me this tape. It's just like, hey, if Craig can do it, then so can you. So maybe you can put together something. And I, and I, and I did. So yes and no. And then coincidentally, I was heading out to Chicago for Henson business. Mm-hmm. I visited Chris on campus and that's. And everyone said, and I was in an improv troupe with Chris and everyone's like, oh, Craig's coming to town. You got to meet Craig. Got to meet Craig. I've been hearing about this guy, Craig. So that's when we <laughs> met for the first time. Yeah. In uh, 91, yeah. December 91. And the rest. And then once history. Stephanie, well, well, you know, she Ish. was just a kid. She was, you know, a Ish. nice kid. Nice to meet you. Yeah. And then she went and did her puppet project, which got enormous amount of attention because it won the student Emmy. Mm, and then great. David Rudman. Who's a, a Chicago Henson, puppeteer yeah, and a Henson, a Henson puppeteer. puppeteer. He plays Cookie Monster and Baby Bear and Janice and Scooter now. And his wife saw the blurb in the Chicago Tribune about Stephanie's student Emmy win and suggested that David get in touch with her. So I had nothing to do with yeah, Stephanie actually beginning her path to Muppets. But you're, I love that your paths converged in that way. And and I just want to add that just because of my friendship with you, Craig, I had a peak experience of actually being there for a Sesame Street taping where I could see the legendary Jim Henson and Frank Oz doing a Bert and Ernie routine. And as someone who had grown up on Sesame Street, you know, it, it had so much diversity from the very beginning Roosevelt, Franklin, all that. So I was all in Sesame Street. It was so exciting just to see them. I never met Jim Henson. I didn't, but I saw him in person. What was it he like? What was it like to meet him, to work with him? What was that like? Well, it was really, you know, he was just really very kind and very generous, but I was just getting to the point in my career where I was comfortable being in a room with him when he passed away. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, you know... I, I will always be able to say that the first piece of material I wrote for the Muppets that got performed was a piece that Jim did as Kermit. Oh, wow. And I was able to watch him do it. And and I had to do the offstage, offscreen lines that, that were talking to Kermit. So I sort of was was interacting with him. And Wait, feeding him lines? Yeah, yeah. Oh. It, this This piece was actually a Kermit speech that for the... Disney shareholder meeting when the first time with Disney was going to buy the Muppets and it ended up not happening. So Kermit was addressing the Disney shareholders and had to talk to Michael Eisner, who was then running Disney. Holy cow. I was. was, uh, Who was like ostensibly live in the meeting. So I was reading the Michael Eisner lines as Jim was doing the Kermit stuff. So it it was amazing. And I was starting to get to, to spend a little time with him on the set of various things. But he was just what I watched was someone who just enjoyed so much what he did and also was willing to hear input from everyone he worked with. He wanted to know what everybody else was thinking. And he was always making the final decisions, but he sort of, he had this way of arriving, getting people to arrive at those decisions with him by sort of demonstrating how the way he wanted to was really the best way to do it. You know, he a question so, for you. It was Jerry Jewell said that Jim had a whim of steel. Hmm. A question for you. 
anytime I have a chance to speak with a master of their craft, one of the things that I will look for is what I call their core creative impulse. Because mastery is just you get on a path of learning, you know, and performing, and you stay on and you find a path to follow or a mentor to follow, and you stay on that path until you've got gray hair. You know, that, that basically, if you do that, you, you become what people call a master. So my question would be, how does somebody maintain the, not the, dis, either the discipline or the hunger over years and decades sufficient to reach the point of unconscious competence with the technical aspects of your craft that your emotions have a chance to flow through that? So from what you know of Jim Henson, what was the core emotional impulse that kept him going and made him you know, an obsessive and an absolute master of his craft? Where was he coming from? I think part of that, it's an interesting question. I think a lot of that comes from this desire that he had to just grow and change as a creative person. You know, he was always, whenever he got, you know, to, whenever he had a project with, that was sort of got to where he thought it, it should be, he would move on to the next project. So, you know, he did the Muppet show for five seasons and moved on mm. because he, you know, the, the show was at the top. He could have done it in another three or four years, but he felt he had accomplished that creatively. So he wanted to move on and do other things like the dark crystal, which was using very different lifelike creatures to tell a story as opposed to, you know, the Muppets comedy and, and music. And I think that that was sort of the key that, that, you know, he just always had a desire to move on and, and conquer another part of, of his art. And it, it, it's a really interesting question that you bring up. Craig, it's, it's amazing to me remembering you as that sort of wide-eyed kid who was about to go start your internship at Jim Henson's company back in college. And reading your book, Sam and Friends, the story of Jim Henson's first television show, you are like an actual historian, dude. It is so impressive. Like the the, the reading about your journey through the archives, basically finding the episodes of Sam and Friends that had been pretty much lost. T talk really briefly just what the show was, but why did you engage with this so much? And, and four years of your life, you told me you worked on this. Why was this so important for you to, to write? Well, I'll start with the, the description of what it was. Sam and Friends was basically five minutes of puppetry. It was sort of a comedy music show. It started out being the, the Muppets lip syncing to comedy records or novelty records, and then eventually turned into sketches, little performance sketches. And it had a commercial for a local meat company. It was sort of the, where the Muppets really started. A lot of what you see on the Muppet show later on, those little individual sketches, that's kind of what Salmon Friends was. And I really was interested in, in exploring this for a couple of reasons. First, I thought that it would be really inspiring to young artists today to see how this kid who had just gotten out of high school started this show and and really from the beginning he started it almost began revolutionizing a whole art form and this was just a kid making stuff with fabric that that he found you know kermit was his mother's coat and a ping pong ball and it was also very hard to do this back then because you couldn't just make a youtube video you had to get it 
stuff done at a TV station. And I thought that if young artists today read this story, they really could be empowered to to bring their own visions because it's so much easier to reach a public now. And I think the second part of this is Jane Henson, because mm. I knew Jane for many years. And Jane was Jim's partner. You know, this this podcast is all about, you know, couples and, and teams. And Jane never really wanted to take any credit for what she did with Jim. And she would always deflect it. And she would say, oh, I just helped. And I think she was there from the beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And she wasn't a little bit like Marsha Lucas, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, I I got her, I interviewed her several times and I got her to admit stuff that she hadn't really talked about before that she actually built some of the puppets. It used to be that the, the, the thought was that Jim built all the puppets in the early days. And then Jane said, well, I built some, I guess for every four puppets that we had, I guess I built one of them. And and that's pretty big. That is, you know, when they formed their official corporation, Jane had 40% of the stock and that's not what you do with a helper. That's a, that's a pretty big partnership. So I wanted to tell Jane's story because she went out of her way to deflect it towards Jim, because I think she thought that that made it a better, clearer story to tell that this is Jim Henson's project, Jim Henson's Muppets. And even after he passed away, she would, whenever there was a request to honor her or to give her an award, she would always find a way of turning it into an award for Jim that she would accept on his behalf. That's, that's beautiful. So glad you did that. And, and Stephanie, and I, and I, I really love the idea of the, these two very creative people doing child-centered programming, working together, even if you're not collaborating directly. I remember a conversation with you, Stephanie, where you talked about some young artists and you were like, they were complaining, am I famous? Am I going to be famous yet? Am I going to be famous yet? Am I going to be famous yet? And you're like, oh my God, it's about the work. Like what Steve was saying at the top of the podcast, it's not about looking up for the fame. It's about doing the work. What's your philosophy about that? How do you sustain your joy and how has your creative work changed over the years? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I feel like what got me through the early years of like trying to get the work and become, you know, just getting the work is hard and it's still hard. I think the thing that nobody tells you is the hustle never ends. Right. I'm still like every job I have is the audition for the next job, apart from the actual auditions for those next jobs. (laughs) Right. Uh, And, and, and there's something, I mean, you gotta love what you do. I mean, you gotta love it and need it to live in order to get through the many, 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 many hard times. And I think that there are a lot of people who go into this for the wrong reasons. They're not fed by it. They think they're going to be fed by the success. They're not fed by the work. Mm. It's like the difference between an author and a writer. An author has written. A writer writes. That's (laughs) exactly right. Absolutely. That's exactly right. I I don't change my performance. If I'm doing a stage show... I'm performing with the same energy in rehearsal, in tech, with an audience of one or an audience of a thousand. That's me. And I know that there are some actors who will, you know, they got to do what they got to do. Me, I love to do it. I need to do it. It's It sounds corny and cheesy, but like it 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 is air to me. And I am a sizable ham 
And I just love the doing. And to the point of ridiculousness, sometimes I am a nerd about performing. I'm a nerd about singing harmony. You know, I'm just a nerd about all that stuff. If I'm asked to do something, I'll I'll give you five versions of that. Even if you only ask for two. Even if you only ask for two. I'll just be like, you, you know, want another? You want another? That, but that, again, that's me. And that helps to know that kind of, I'm kind of stuck here. I can't do anything else. So you... You do it for the love and you hope that there's luck along the way. And there has been luck along the way, but luck plays a big part of it. I don't yeah. know if that answers the question. I know it. Yeah, absolutely. It does. One thing, one thing that I did want to say real quick before Tenorio asks another brilliant question. It has, <laughs> it has to do with the fact I don't believe in talent as something innate. It may exist or it may not, but I've never seen the concept do anybody any good. What I have seen is focused honest attention to something, passion over time, that, it, that the people, what the, everybody I've, I've known who operate at that master, grandmaster level said something just like what you said. They are a nerd for what they do. The doing of the thing itself is the reward. If other people know, it's fine. But if they don't, I remember a guy who I saw at, do, perform brilliantly at a karate tournament and the heavyweight and, and, mid, and light heavyweight champions did not want to fight this, this lightweight because he was so fast. They literally stonewalled and denied him a chance to fight for the championship. And I looked at him and I said, doesn't that hurt you? And he said, no, they just turned the trophy into a piece of plastic. Oh, wow. For yeah. him, it was the thing itself. And what you've just said about that passion and letting that little girl part of you say, let's put on a show, you know, yeah. that, that thing, that is the core of what talent is. You, you're happy having spent your life doing the thing that you love. That's when, when anybody who's like that is, is doomed to success. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of you to say, but no, but I, you know, at the same time, I, this is a foolish path to take. I mean, <laughs> by any sane, you know, estimation, no, I look it's at true, it. It's a, you know, Jim Henson said in a documentary once. Oh yeah, I don't think anybody would choose to become a puppeteer. Yeah, you know, I don't. And and you know, that was his path. He didn't. That's a, the other funny thing about this book. He didn't set out to be a puppeteer. He just wanted to work in television. Mm -hmm. You know, right. he found a, a path to getting into what he wanted to do. And I feel like, I guess for me, puppetry is, is, is similar in that I wanted to be able to play the widest variety of characters without being too short, too fat, too this, too that, too old, too young. And just the idea of getting to do different things yes. every day, you know? Yeah, that too. Well, With and the that, exception of when you were doing the same performance every day for a thousand times, you know? But even that, now that, that that's different presents its own challenges and i found the challenge in because i love variety i love doing different things playing different characters you know but doing the same thing uh, how do you keep the variety in a performance when you have to do a performance of a single character saying the same lines every night for years how do you keep it fresh well and that, that's what i was getting to so my challenge that i gave to myself is consistency climb that mountain every night, but give it that same energy that you had opening night. Now that's easier said than done because a lot of people and there, you know, 
This is a philosophy that not everybody in theater has. There are people like, you got to shake it up every night because acting is reacting. So I'm going to just like throw shit around. And I'm thinking, why were you rehearsing for two months Mm. to get this just right? If you weren't going to make a product, I mean, sometimes directors come in and maintain a show. Sometimes they don't. And I think that maintenance means it doesn't mean doing the same thing rotely every night. It doesn't mean that I'm saying, you know, ba, 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 ba. It means being consistent and fresh and that or seeming fresh. And yeah. that that's hard. And I <laughs> and that's sort of that's the high goal praise. That, that, you know, in Broadway, the whole idea is that they're trying to keep the performance the way it was that it was on opening night. Right. You're sort of trying to deliver that because people are coming from all over to yeah, see exactly what that what the big deal was. And, what yeah. was this show? And I would always think there was a quote from Joe DiMaggio who said, you know, I have to play my hardest every time because I know there's going to be some kid out there in the stands who are coming to see me play for the first time. And Avenue Q was a first time show for a lot of first time Broadway show for a lot of we got a lot of young people. And by young people, I mean, teenagers, high school students, college students seeing their first Broadway show. And that's a responsibility. I mean, to anybody who's going to pay $100 a ticket, you have a responsibility, but especially to these kids. I'm like, I'm not going to phone this in. I don't care how tired I am. So, yeah, that longevity, that that's that's tricky. But I enjoyed giving myself that challenge. That's fantastic. No, that's beautiful. Thanks for letting me ramble. <laughs> so, you do no. No, it was brilliant, Stephanie. It's just, that is what we're talking about here. We're four creative people talking about this thing that we love from slightly different directions. But it is by by looking at the mountain from several different directions that you get a sense of the ineffable. There is something about this creative life that cannot be put into words. But if all of us do the honest best we can to describe our process and our journey, then others who are trying to start the journey know where the road is. You know, mm. start find somebody, find somebody to follow, find a craft, keep getting better, find a creative community, believe in yourself, work your ass off, do it for the work, not the money. These things are not what is generally taught because most people who teach professionally if they could do it at a high level, they'd be doing it rather than teaching. The blessed teachers are the ones who can both do and teach. And when you find those people, it's gold. The only people we try to have on this show are people who can both express what they're doing and people who have done it. Because to me, that's the best of the best. Yeah. And let me ask you this. I mean, Steve and I do a lot of collaboration and I feel like the two of you are both sort of supportive of each other in your individual projects, right? How important has it been for each of you to be in relationship with another creative? Ooh. Well, I think it's, it's everything. It, it's really important. I think what, you know, when I was first starting out at Henson, I had an interest in, in pursuing puppetry. And I'm so glad I didn't end up there because I think what's great about our relationship and what we do is that we're in a we're in slightly different fields but we can appreciate what the other one does because we work closely with them i work with a lot of puppeteers stephanie works with a lot of writers and i've puppeteered a little bit myself and stephanie's written quite yeah. a lot more than i've puppeteered so we can appreciate what the other is doing but we're not in direct competition mm-hmm 
with, you know, so it's not a, getting a one-upsman situation or one yeah. one ups person. Yeah. yeah. Who got more but, of the puppeteering gigs. But we can appreciate each other's talents. Well, and, and the we understanding. can also help each other. And yeah. the understanding of what it is to begin with. I mean, I'm still kind of shocked sometimes that there are people in our industries who don't fully understand what it is we do. Certainly the puppetry, I think, is a little more confusing than the writing, but even the kind of writing that Craig does, he does really specialized stuff that's, that, that is very, very, very wide spectrum of stuff between the live shows for the Little Orchestra Society and the Sam and Friends book, and then writing interstitials for animation, and then writing, you know, all those appearances for Muppets. It's not like he wrote The Muppet Show. It's not, he doesn't write Sesame Street. Street, what he writes is something very, very yeah, people different. People sometimes don't think about like Miss Piggy having someone helping her write yeah. stuff for when she goes on a talk show. Or even things like, you know, and I'm I'm proud of this work. It it, it doesn't it you know, writing Muppets trading cards, writing hang tags for products, writing yes. the backs of Muppets action figures. That's not something that just happens. It's not the gravy and that, that comes of, with the I meat. Was, you know? When I was working at Henson, that was one of the coolest things that I had to do because every day I would come in and get to do something different. And I'd come into my desk and they're like, oh, we want you to work on the Farscape trading cards or we want you to do this. And, you know, every day it, w- it was something different. And I love doing that. And I think that there are people that are, you know, maybe not as understanding of that who would turn their nose up at it or say, oh, well, that's not real writing. You know, I've had people in my industry say to me in regards to the puppetry, well, what real acting have you done? Mm, so like it's nice to have all. a partner who not only appreciates <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. who not only appreciates it, but understands it and knows what it what it means and what it entails because it 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 all comes down to i think respect and support Uh, well and especially during the down times which there are many of and sometimes the support is literal like when you mentioned the the thing in in our intro that when we had the the covid lockdown we were producing content in in this very room neither of us could have done it alone i had a a camera set up right here and and we did a an Emmy nominated show. Yeah, right, Craig right set here. up the green screen right away. Ran oh, camera, right. ran audio cues. I mean, Beautiful. I couldn't have done it without him. It was That's creativity, creative intelligence is problem solving, or it is nothing at all. Yeah. So and creativity is very- coming up with lots of ideas. Wisdom is figuring out which of these ideas might work. <laughs> and you know, Absolutely. it's funny. It felt a lot like CRC. I was going to uh, say, we it sounds like that. you had a mini CRC in your house. That's what it felt That's like, only with much better equipment. Yeah, I know, I could never right. have dreamed of affording equipment when I was I in school. I think that's school. the thing. When I look back at, you know, the, the old pictures or the video that we, we found of us producing, I'm just like, boy, you know, we had to carry around all that stuff. Yes. And, you know, and, and nowadays people can do all of this production with your phone. Exactly. Yes. It's, it's all there. iPhone. These kids today, they don't yeah. know how lucky and they, they have, are. They have air conditioning at CRC. <laughs> they I mean, do. Come on. They have air conditioning at CRC. Oh, my gosh. Well, you two are just so delightful. And I'm, I'm, right back I'm at you. really, really happy that we've been able to have you on the show. And I hope everyone listening appreciates the advice on how to lunge for your dreams headfirst 
to look at the work and not at the fame. And it all starts at the level of deciding that is something you are going to do. And really, that's what our Life Writing Premium product is about, is to help writers, some of whom may have published but have not been consistent, or maybe you've never published and and you're trying to get more confidence. It's basically a weekly subscription. You get a, a different module every week with advice on everything from craft to lifestyle to the emotions that it takes to actually work in a creative field and keep your energy high. And this is a program Steve created actually long before I met him. So Steve, tell the folks a little bit about life writing. Basically, it all came from a class I taught at UCLA where a student was saying they didn't have any time to write. And I said to them, if you were a character in a story you were writing and that character had that problem, and at the end of the story, that character was successful, what would you have the character do now? And the guy started coming up with all of his own answers. He solved his own problem right there. And I was shocked. And I realized, did some research later on, I realized that storytelling is the elders of the village telling the younger people, this is what your lives will be. So there is a consistent pattern that one can find that Joseph Campbell identified in Hero with a Thousand Faces that is just, this is the pattern. It doesn't matter whether or not you want to ride a bicycle, start a career, anything. There are certain patterns that you're going to experience and that by organizing whatever principles of success you have into a story pattern, a story you're telling about your own life. You are using, you are learning how to use the problem solving that you have in storytelling that we've all experienced a million times, that we all do a thousand times a day, and you're turning that same engine into solving the problems in your life, and you're taking the problems in your life that you have solved if you became an adult, because everybody's done that, and applying it to your writing. That was where life writing started. When I met Tananarive, we recognized in each other that if if we could keep our egos out of it, that we could build an empire together, that we could do something very special, that we we, we literally were, use those words. <laughs> we we literally use those words. After years of doing this, in Tananarive teaching at UCLA and teaching at uh, Beck East and at Spelman College, yeah. she had her own pedagogy. And I had mine. And I said, you know something? We don't have to agree on what creativity is or what writing is. Let's do a course where each of us talks about the same subjects from a slightly different perspective. And that way people can see that thing that we talked about, that there are things about creativity in life that cannot be put into words. All you can do is point a finger. You don't fixate. You don't fixate on a finger or you'll miss all that heavenly glory. Don't Pay attention to the teacher. Pay attention to the path they're talking about. So Life Writing Premium is taking people for one year, minimum. You know, we'd like for you to stick around longer. And every week we give you different prompts, different perspectives, different videos, different lectures, different guest instructors, different assignments. As often as we can, we actually will choose a student's story and do a hot seat where we will, you know, read them and analyze them life writing style. This is the course that we wish we'd had when we were 15 years old. It's as simple as that. That's for sure. It's it's a love letter to the writer I was when I was a kid, when I was younger. This path will multiply your energies, your intelligence, your efforts. And I could not 
be prouder of what it is that we put together. And I could not, we, not a single student who has gotten into this class, who has followed our direction, has written more than 26 stories without getting published. So if you will write a story every other week, we can pretty much promise you we can get you published within a year. And the minimum buy-in, as we like to say, is a sentence a day. And sometimes I have to remember that when we were moving. Yeah. Are you willing to write a sentence a day? That was it. Can we like, leverage that from there to one to four short stories a month. By the time you're doing that, if you're following our most basic piece of advice, we can we can do it's not that hard. But it all it takes to get everything you want is everything you've got. Are you willing to actually commit and care and work honestly every day and give room for your dreams? Then we've got something for you. It's Life Writing Premium at www.lifewritingpremium.com. We would love for you to be our next success story. Yeah, if you have the passion, but you haven't been able to either discipline yourself or find a structure to channel that passion, this is a course that is for you. And screenwriters, we haven't left you out. Steve and I are doing a lot of screenwriting. I sometimes feel like I'm still in the student space. As soon as I learn something about screenwriting, I want to pass it on to other people so they don't have to work at it as long as I did. So check out www.lifewritingpremium.com. Thank you again to our amazing guests, Stephanie Abruzzo and Craig Shimon. You know, um, Craig, Tanari loves you dearly. Let me and and having a chance to interact (laughs) with you and the lady in your life shows me exactly why. Don't you pick up your copy of Sam and Friends, the story of Jim Henson's first television show. Who knew there was a five-minute puppetry show right before the Tonight Show? I didn't know that. That's a great spot. That's a great spot. Thank you both for being here. Every and everybody, go on and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. The Thank hero, you, Tanya, in the adventure of your lifetime. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.